In this episode of the ESG Beat, we will speak with Chris Hufnagel, Professor of Law at UC Berkeley School of Law. Professor Hufnagel is an expert in information privacy, consumer protection, cybersecurity, and the regulation of technology. Today, we will get his insights on why privacy is particularly challenging to regulate, as well as his predictions for where we are headed. Welcome to the ESG Beat, Chris. Thank you for having me. So I'm, I'm very excited to share your insights on privacy, of course, but before I do that, can you tell our audience a little bit more about your work more broadly? I work on cybersecurity. I do a lot of work on cybercrime and networks of transnational criminal operators that are using the internet to commit crimes. And I'm currently writing a book about quantum technologies. So how will things like quantum sensing and quantum computing affect policy and legal landscapes? Okay, that all of that sounds so fascinating. And I hope that you'll join us for another episode to explore your new book once it comes out. But let's move to regulating privacy. You and I have discussed in the past that privacy is difficult to regulate, but what makes privacy particularly difficult? Privacy is an abstract and changing social value. So it's abstract in the sense that it means different things to different people on one level, but it's also the case that we can't conceive of privacy harms generally until they have occurred. So I think, for instance, before the 2016 election, most of us would probably laugh if we thought that some you know, group of bandits in Russia could influence the election through promoting disinformation on Facebook. But once it's happened and we realize that personal information is used in the process of creating those frauds and targeting people for those frauds, we then expand our notions of privacy and cybersecurity threats. It's also very difficult to tell how companies use our data. So we can conceive of privacy easily as being an, an issue surrounding secrecy, as in my personal data is secret from you, but in fact, in most of our relationships, you have my personal data and I have to trust that you only use it for pro-social purposes and, and not for purposes outside my expectations. So I understand that argument. It's very intuitive, but would you say that it's also a little bit of a cop-out? Because I've also heard that argument being made, and sometimes I wonder whether it's not all that difficult to regulate. And so is privacy simply a matter of personal taste? So one strategy in the privacy environment is to say that Privacy is really personal preference. And so we shouldn't have privacy laws or rules. What we should instead have is some type of contractual agreement or settings agreement between each individual person and, um, and then services like Facebook or Google. But I think what that ignores is that there are commonalities that we can paint and we can make assumptions around. And over time, those group expectations emerge and and become clear. They also change. I mean, one great example is our physical location was not considered a sensitive privacy issue until just a few years ago when we realized that we were being tracked by location all the time and that it was revealed by things like our telephone. And so we could then contemplate stalkers or other people who want to do us harm uh, knowing where we are. 
And there are group norms and group expectations, and they do change in, in a big sense from new threats. How much of the privacy norms do you think are cultural and are different in, let's say, the EU and the U.S. leading to different privacy frameworks where, you know, in the U.S., privacy is essentially a commodity that can be contractually negotiated, whereas in the EU, it's more protected. Can you speak to that a little bit? I think the EU-U.S. difference isn't about technology or privacy per se, but rather a different legal system that's much more dependent on administrative regulation than the United States. And so for the Europeans, it makes sense to have a law like the General Data Protection Regulation, which attempts to contemplate every single type of data collection and use and what could go wrong and what to do about it. And it's a very European way of thinking. It's, it's magisterial and difficult in some ways, and as Americans, we like to say, let the harm happen first and let's learn from experience rather than plan out um, the different approach. But I don't think it's that, you know, oftentimes people say Europeans don't care about, let's say, law enforcement. That's absolutely not the case. The European criminal procedure is in many respects stronger than American criminal procedure. And there is all sorts of data intensive investigations that are legal in the United States, sometimes even unregulated, that are regulated in Europe. Okay, so for the benefit of the corporate executives in the audience who are committed to protecting privacy, what advice do you have for them? What does it mean precisely for an organization to protect privacy? Well, this goes to one of the fundamental conflicts that we're beginning to see between the public and how institutions implement privacy. So most institutions, when they implement privacy, it means to create a procedure, a, a method, if you will, of dealing with personal information. So on the most basic level, it means that you think about the data you're collecting, you inspect it to make sure that you don't have data you don't want to collect. Then you think through the life cycle of that data. How are those data going to be used who will have access to it? How long will you keep it? How will you protect it? A whole kind of life cycle, treat data as an asset. Uh, the same way you would treat um, a valuable asset like money or your intellectual property. That's all procedural though. And the, 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 I, I alluded to a, um, a divergence between popular perception and what happens in the business community. In the business community, we think about these processes, the life cycle of data, but the popular public wants outcomes. They're not interested so much in these procedures. They want outcomes that are compatible with their views. And that's a, a lot of where the, the conflict exists. You can have companies that are actually doing a great job on privacy from a procedural context, yet still create outcomes that the public does not like. Can you give us an example of that disconnect between procedures and outcomes? Well, you can imagine a lot of thought going into an advertising system that minimizes personal data and so on, but nonetheless causes ads to follow a person around the internet. So you're constantly seeing, you know, you looked at something on Amazon.com, three hours later you see it on New York Times and, and so on. So many times revealing those wanted outcomes of things like relevant advertising 
there are ways to do it in a way that is procedurally compliant with privacy law, but nonetheless makes the individual feel as though they're being followed. So how do you suggest that companies bridge that gap and align their privacy practices with our social norms, which are always evolving, right? It makes a lot of sense to stay in touch with consumers, to have a dialogue with them about what is in their expectations, to have dialogues with ordinary people about what they think is creepy and what they think is, uh, is acceptable. I, I think a lot of organizations can get into a kind of group thing and not consider what normal people think about the world. A great example is when Google introduced its uh, social network service, it automatically opted everyone into it. And then it automatically disclosed all your close email contacts. And the result of that was that spouses learned that their wives and husbands were seeing psychiatrists that they didn't know about. And uh, people's secret clients were outed as a result of that. And no one in Google actually thought to reach outside the organization to think about how others might perceive that element of transparency. That's certainly a good example. Thank you. Thank you for that, Chris. So let's move to a proposition that's on the ballot this November in just a couple of weeks. What role will California's Proposition 24 play in privacy here? And this is important because you know there are many who theorize where California goes, the nation will follow. So what do you think about Proposition 24? And can you tell us a little bit about it first? So here in California, we have a general privacy framework known as the California Consumer Privacy Act, the proponent of which is worried that it's going to be watered down by successive waves of, of lobbying to get certain industries out of it or to otherwise weaken its provisions. So the proponent has introduced a new ballot measure known as Prop 24 that strengthens the CCPA in some ways other ways, it reduces its regulatory burden. It's actually, I think, in my opinion, easier to comply with than the CCPA. Interestingly, the privacy advocates are divided on the law. There's some privacy advocates that think that the proposition is too weak. I fall into the category of people who think that on par, it does more to protect privacy than, than undermine it. But um, among the things it does is it, it treats certain classes of information as sensitive so that you could go to Google or Facebook and you could keep your account, and yet you could tell them not to use your precise location, your race, your religion, and so on in their targeting algorithms. So it's a way of minimizing the ability of organizations to use data in their decision-making about you. Um, it's largely harmonious with, with European regulation. It does a whole lot of things. It also creates an agency in California devoted to protecting privacy, which I think is an important structure to have. Thank you for that. I actually hadn't realized that the privacy community is, is so divided. And that's really interesting. And again, underscores that privacy is, is complicated. So I wanted to move to something that you know is top of mind for all of us today, which is uh, racial injustice, and talk about the intersection between privacy policy and racial justice. So in what ways can privacy end up operating to be anti-racist? We might find that our current approach to be race-blind or race-neutral, so that is, let's put a of a, a thumb on the scale for not collecting data about race, not considering race, actually is a racist policy because 
our systems end up harming black and brown populations, but we don't realize it. So, so I think the counterintuitive place that we might find ourselves very soon is we might want institutions to be collecting racial data for the purpose of testing their systems implications for black and brown communities and other communities that we're concerned about. I think this is an area where privacy is going to have to undergo a revolution. The assumption that race blindness is the correct approach, I think is going to come into be profoundly questioned. Uh, systems like credit reporting, credit scoring are supposed to be race blind, but we know that the outcomes of these systems result in a form of, of discrimination for people in certain neighborhoods, and that ends up being a proxy for race. So what if we find ourselves in a, a different place a year from now, where all of a sudden we're under demands to collect information about race, and we're under the demand to compare our models um, uh, for racial outcomes, for uh, outcomes on gender, and maybe even outcomes on class. It could be a place we find ourselves relatively soon. That's very interesting. And is the privacy community also divided on, on that issue? Because it, it does seem very counterintuitive, but now that you explain it, it suddenly seems obvious. I'm not sure what their position is. I think one of the problems, one of the, one of the things you see the, the, the privacy advocacy community doing is that they're using privacy as a, a political tool for many different interests. And it's, it's not just you know, limiting government power or limiting the ability for people to look at me in a way that I don't like. It's also being used to motivate conversations about economic equality. And so there's definitely a revolution in the space. I see the advocates arguing that privacy rights should apply equally despite one's relative wealth, which is strange because we know that people who own private homes have more privacy, right? than let's say renters or people who don't have a home to live in at all. Well, the advocates are definitely going into a direction where they want to level the privacy playing field. So thank you, Chris. I look forward to continuing the conversation and seeing how that space develops with respect to privacy and racial justice. But unfortunately, our time has come to an end. Uh, but before I let you go, I always like to give our guests two parting gifts, a magic wand and a crystal ball. So let's start with a magic wand. If you could wave your magic wand as a privacy advocate and change something about how companies approach privacy, what would that be? For me, it's, it's an erosion of behavioral advertising as a business model because there is no structural force for surveillance that's stronger than targeting and attributing advertising. It also is a force enhancer for military police and intelligence surveillance of people. And um, I've seen examples of each. So I think that's a, a big thing is moving away from behavioral advertising to contextual advertising. But I also, I don't have a really a positive vision for privacy. I, my work in quantum technologies signals that we're moving to a world where more institutions are gonna have more ability to sense private facts. Um, inside homes, inside buildings, um, through walls, and so on. And we're going to be moving into an era where sensing is going to become dramatically more invasive. And so we're going to have to think about the power to sense, the power to make sense of sensing, and 
also the power to take decisions based on enhanced sense making. That's what I'm really worried about and what I'm working on in quantum technologies. So I'm wondering if we could just take another uh, minute or so for you to tell us the difference between behavioral and contextual. Yeah, so behavioral targeting is very much based on one's history online. So it's linked to uh, the websites they previously visited and what they did and who they are. Whereas in contextual advertising, it's more about the publisher's value proposition. If you go to a sports website, it might have ads for golf and tennis and football and so on. So it, it's, I think it's more compatible with building high quality content and audiences. Whereas in the, the behavioral advertising approach is very much about clickbait. And the quality of the website you visit doesn't matter because it's about targeting the individuals that visit it rather than enhancing the content of the property. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you for that. And we got into your crystal ball a little bit, but just to make it very concrete, and it, it looked grim to me, but just to make it very concrete, where do you think that we're headed? Well, the, the, the technologies in quantum sensing will be remote and more accurate. And so we can foresee very interesting space platforms for quantum sensing. It'll be important. And you know, closer to home, we'll see sonar, radar systems, systems that can see through walls, systems that can see through roofs. So you could imagine nation states wanting to create devices that do things like look for guns, heavy metals, molecules associated with bombs, molecules associated with drugs. And the question we're gonna to have to figure out from a legal context is if I can sense those things at a distance without interfering with your property, perhaps even sensing it from space, how are you gonna articulate a, a, a privacy right against that type of inspection? And that there are answers to this. There are, there are ways to answer this puzzle, but um, we could be presented with this puzzle through the lens of, let's say, preventing a terrorist attack, in which case we might make certain decisions. Whereas if we are presented with it through my book, <laughs> I'm hoping we can have a more, uh, a more neutral and, and maybe abstract discussion of what it might mean. Well, I'm hoping that we will be presented with it through your book as well. And I look forward to reading your book and I always learn so much. So thank you so much for your time and for sharing your work with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG beat with me today.